podcast with James and Jane. Hey, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you all about the great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out our online seminar program, the workshops we run, as well as our coaching and all the other podcasts we've recorded. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now on to this episode. Hello, this is James. And Jane. And here we are again with another episode of the World of Work podcast. Well, you say it's another episode and of the World ooh, of Work ooh, what's podcast. Coming up? What's coming up? But uh, but actually, it's a little bit different from a our bit different. usual episodes. All right. Um, Hit me with it. <laughs> so we're going to do things a little bit differently today. A little bit differently. A little, a little bit differently. Um, we have been having conversations, listeners, about uh, the world. Ooh. And yeah, big, big, heavy conversations. Mm-hmm. Not really, but I think we have been looking around and seeing that it's quite a unique period in history, in the certainly yeah. in the sense that there's lots going on. Um, uh, for those of you listening here in the UK, we're mid Brexit. I mean, well, we're mid something. I'm still not sure yeah. exactly what's we're happening. We're after the E and before the X or something like that. Is that right? Well, I think we're after the I and before the T. Based on, I mean, mind you, by the time you listen to this, it could have all changed because <laughs> yeah, yeah. last night after uh, the, the Q government and before the Z or something. Yeah. Like that. So last night the government voted on asking for a extension. I don't really understand if it's short or long, but anyway. Mm-hmm. So we're at the business end of Brexit. Um, the US have obviously has obviously got sort of a polarizing thing going on around Democrats and Republicans and, and some of the stuff particularly around things like the wall. Yeah. We've just yesterday had a terrible tragedy in New Zealand. That's true in Christchurch. Um, in Christchurch, so massive condolences to the people out there. And also there's just there's just a lot of stuff going on right in the world. Yeah. And there's um I guess with our we're not we're not politi- political analysts, no. we're not uh not at all. anything like that, but I am interested in what maybe some of the theory and the academic research around organisations can tell us about some of the things that are going on in the world, what we can learn, what maybe politicians might have learned, maybe they didn't and maybe they could have done, I don't know. But I think um, certainly we've had more and more conversations around division in organisation and around change and managing it and how you decide what to do. Um, And so James has gone away and researched four different sort of models stroke theories stroke points of view and we're gonna have a little bit of a conversation about how they might uh be useful in organizations that are similarly experiencing periods of change yeah um and whether they're relevant and whether they're helpful Uh, because we thought that would be a really interesting conversation so we don't know how this is going to go right because we do not have our new normal structure we're just going to go through each of the four points we've got a special structure a structure that it's will emerge special, as, we, uh, it is, it as is, we explore it. It is a special structure for a special episode. <laughs> yes. um, so James is going to take us through each of the four, and each time he's going to explain um, a piece of research or a point of view, and we're going to have a little conversation about how we think it might relate to organisations in periods of change, how it might relate to Brexit or yeah. other changes going on in the world, yeah. and what that means, really, and whether maybe it doesn't mean anything. I can't wait. James got really funny guys. James got a really funny face, and I can't tell if it's I can't James wait. James has got a really funny face. That's what she just said. By the way. I know, but it's it's because I don't know if you're looking at me like I, I think don't you mean a funny expression. It is. Sorry, <laughs> it's because I think James is slightly worried because I've been on a lot of late political rants lately um, in my life, and to the point where I got uh, told off by my other half last night uh, for just maybe needing to calm down a bit about it all Mm. so i will do my best to stick my head in the organization development world before we get started yeah uh a couple of things one as always people can get in touch yep 
Uh, we would love to hear from you. Um, Twitter has been going positively crazy lately crazy, for us. Crazy. Um, so it's really lovely. We've had lots of people engaged, letting us know they're listening to episodes, telling us about what they're doing. Shout out to um, Marina in London, who I know has been listening and sent me uh, sent me on Twitter, which I shared with the, uh, the podcast timeline, a great photo of a little huddle space. Oh, that was nice, wasn't it? Yeah. I thought it was quite cute, was right? Cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she sent me a photo, uh, or maybe us actually, on the on the I think timeline. It was a shared one. I okay. Can't remember. And it was a photo of a little huddle space. In yeah, London. it was nice with a little so, card or whatever. Little so clearly, clearly we're not here. the only ones. No. Um, so do send us your stuff on Twitter. You can also find us on our, there's lots of information on our website, www.thewowpodcast.org, where you can also sign up for our wow mail. Wow mail. Wow mail. Which I've had to change the name of. Oh, right. No, no, we can still call it wow mail, but the, the, the sentence at the beginning kept going to everyone's spam. So I've now, oh, I've now okay, addressed that, yeah. hopefully. It's not the spam mail, though. We don't want that. That's no, well, it was, it was spam wow mail, which I thought was weird. <laughs> spam mail. Oh, yeah, yeah so, um, so yeah, you can sign up there. We're on LinkedIn, Insta, Facebook. Come find us. Come talk to us. Come tell us what you think. Um, and don't send us your critiques of Brexit. No, That's my no, only no. request. This yeah. is... Uh, absolutely what we're talking about here is how we can take lessons from academic yeah. theory and play points of view and put them uh into action potentially if they're right for it within organizations yeah yeah we're kind of like you know the world inspired by some thinking of what's going on now a little bit of a digest of brexit and things like that and what it means for change in organizations brexit has inspired us to record this podcast no. which i don't think anyone's ever said ever no. <laughs> but uh okay where are you gonna start you're gonna kick us so, off so yeah i'd love to kick us off so <clears throat> what we're gonna do um, as Jane said, is we're going to go through four different sort of models and frameworks and have a little think about them partly from a Brexit perspective, but also just partly from an organizational perspective and see what we can learn and, and what some lessons are and similarities and differences and reflections and, you know, just the usual type of seeing what happens chat that we do. So where am I going to start us off? Well, what I'm going to do, deep breaths, is I'm going to start us off way back in the 1940s. With our favourite person, Mr. K.L. We love Mr. K.L. Kurt Lewin. Kurt Lewin. <gasps> oh, I'm going to start gushing about Oh, yay. We love Kurt Lewin. Um, anyway, we're going to start with a tool which is force field analysis. Now, why would we possibly be doing this, you might be wondering? Well, that's a very good question. Hopefully, I can explain it a little bit. But first, let's, let's talk about what force field analysis is. So, force field analysis is a tool that's used as a bit of an assessment framework when you're thinking about introducing change. Right, so it's a way to analyze how a uh, how how sentiment exists in, in relation to a change, um, and essentially all you do with force field analysis is you get a big piece of paper, you stick a line in the middle, you write what a potential change is that you're looking to achieve in the middle of that, and then on one side with some arrows pointing towards the line, you write some driving forces. So these are the factors that support the change, the types of things that. Um, that are you know uh, trying to make sure that the change will happen, positive factors and uh, inertia type factors that are supporting the change. And then on the other side, you draw some arrows that say resisting forces. So these are all the things that are holding back the change and, and pushing against the direction of change that's out there. Now, why are we talking about this? Well, we're talking about this because if you think about Brexit at the minute, and if you go a long way back in time to pre-referendum stuff in the UK and, and when a political decision was being made in relation to the change, what you'll find is that there were driving forces pushing for um, the UK leaving the European Union, which was basically the referendum question. Um, and at the same time, there were restraining forces pushing against that change, right? So, so it's possible to draw, broadly speaking, a force field analysis, looking at driving forces supporting and, and um, you know, moving towards 
the change and restraining forces pushing against it. Now, what Kurt Lewin says is several different things. He says that you can, you can draw all those different forces and you draw the forces on each side. You can apply scores to them. Though I'm not sure that, that Lewin ever really intended scores to be drawn for it, but certainly something that people do now is they apply scores to each of the different uh, forces that they have. So, for example, for driving forces, you could have force one, force two, force three, and those would have different strengths. So one could be only a small proponent of, of uh, support for the change, so maybe a, a score of one. Another could have a really big score, so maybe a score of six. And in doing that way, doing that, you could assess the different scores that were supporting your changes. Um, and pushing them along and the different forces that were resisting the changes and pushing back against them. So basically you end up with a piece of paper with um, arrows pointing into the, to the middle from both sides. Uh, and fundamentally the length of those arrows or, or the, the power of those arrows is an indicator of the overall um, support for the change, I guess. Um, and if you do put numbers in it, you can come up with a total score if you wanted to. So you could have a total score for the driving forces and a total score for the restraining forces. And essentially what the model says is that um, if, if the total forces pushing for a change and the total forces pushing against a change are fairly similar in strength, then it might be hard to deliver whatever that change is. Or it might imply that that change is going to be difficult to deliver. Um, the other thing that's worth pointing out is that within the model, what you might be able to do or, or the way that organizations could use the model is to say, okay, well, force one feels like it's only got a strength of two at the minute. Maybe we can go back and, and look at that force and spend a bit of time um, doing more on it and growing that and making it into a more powerful argument or something like that. Or alternatively, you might look at a restraining force for whatever the changes that you want to introduce and say, okay, well, there's a big force pushing against the change, uh, hypothetically in a business instance, potentially to do with our IT systems will make it very hard to implement that. And you might say, okay, well, that's a serious restraining force why don't we try and tackle that in some way so why don't we um, change our IT systems or invest in them in such a way that it reduces that restraining force and maybe if we tackle that a little bit then the overall sort of momentum towards the change or acceptability of that change will be bigger right so force field analysis is really just almost a diagnostic tool you can use at the early stage of a change to assess whether or not it feels like it's um it's going to be um, delivered in a in a successful manner in a fairly quick and simple way. Um, what I wanted to call out though, and, and we're not going to look at you know Brexit specific related things um, in terms of forces, but I do have a list of some types of forces that exist in, when you look at force field analysis that might just give you a flavor of the types of things that are there. So from a, a, I guess a business or organizational perspective, there are internal forces and external forces. So some of the internal forces that could exist on either side, so they could be um, you know, uh, for change or against change, could include things like a desire to increase profit, um, a need to reorganize to increase efficiency, maybe natural aging and decline in a business, or, or you know, obsolescence of machinery, um, uh, obsolescence of uh, intellectual property, conflicts between departments, need for flexibility and structures, things like that. And then there are a series of external factors as well. So there are a whole load of them. This is just an example. But we've got things like um, uncertain economic conditions, greater competition, input costs, legislation, taxation, political interests, ethics and social values, globalization, scarcity of resources, technology changing, like all your sort of pestle type stuff's in there as well. So anyway, um, the reason I wanted to bring that one up is I just thought it was interesting as a, as a way to, to think about change. And from a Brexit perspective, I guess... 
as I said earlier, if you go back to the beginning at the very start of Brexit, it would have been possible to pull together a series of driving forces on one side of your force field analysis and a series of restraining forces on the other with a referendum question in the middle. And we probably would have seen that actually things feel um, from the strength of the forces there probably kind of finely balanced. And, and for me, that would be an indicator that it would be um, a complicated thing to try and achieve. Over to you. Is that, is that a hospital pass? What do you think? I think, uh, so interestingly, when you read the list out of some of the potential changes, there's one that you didn't mention that for me probably explains why I think this is really relevant, okay. both to Brexit, but also why I think it's really relevant to organisations. And it's it's an internal one. And it's a general sense that the business could do better. Okay. Now, for me, I have worked in organisations where new CEOs have come in and they have they have used that yep. as a barometer. So they've, they've asked people, you know, is there potential? Is there potential yep. we could be doing more? Which I think is a loaded question, right? Because just mm-hmm. because there's potential for doing more doesn't mean that the change is going to deliver that. But um, for Brexit, it feels incredibly accurate. Yeah. Um, I think there is a general sense in the country and quite often in organisations that you could do better and quite often that's enough. Okay. To make that people momentum, want to look at yep. a change, if nothing else. Now, my concern is that, from what I've taken from the Lewin model, is, um, and I have to be really careful because I haven't. I've read. I've read a bit of it, but I've also read quite a lot of what people are doing with it now, and yeah, I'm not 100 yeah, yeah. percent convinced I've understood the nuances of it. Sure. Because I, I, I am, haven't either. Right. I am. No, no, and I. That's the point, isn't it? It's having a conversation. Yeah, but yeah. but let's let's put a caveat on this. If the scoring is included in the Lewin model yeah. rather than someone adding it on, then I think it is horrible and reductive mm-hmm. because I think it's half the problem with Brexit and with organisations that people try and reduce a, a set of changes because we're talking about a set of changes, right? No yeah. organisation has a single change because yeah. it has impact and the same with Brexit. Yeah, it has multiple yeah, yeah. impacts. It's all systemic. So um, if you're going to create change to reduce the push scores and the pull scores to a number... yeah. And then make a decision on, even if it's hard, it's on one side or the other, I think is incredibly reductive. Sure, okay. If the Lewin model, as I've understood it, is about using it to analyse what those pressures are, yeah. such that you can make an informed decision about if this is the right moment for change versus sure. trying to address some of those issues and then move forward, yeah. then I think it's brilliant yeah. and genius. Yeah. And so it's a re- you know it's like all of these tools. And one of the challenges, Lewin was written at a time where psychology and particularly organisational psychology was not rigorous in the way it tested things. In fact, I suspect it sat in management science. And so it it is a challenge because there is this great concept that I actually think is incredibly powerful for organisations. And I think if you sat down um, in periods of turmoil, particularly, let's let's say the decline, the general sense of decline in productivity, right? If you sat down with your key staff and you looked at, a, at some of the change options that you had, and yeah. then you did this analysis, and you didn't reduce it to a score, but instead you used it as a way to inform all the different factors and how yeah. meaningful they are and what other yeah. ways you could solve yeah, yeah. some of them. And to get that I think overall that's, view. I think that's then incredibly yeah. powerful. Yeah. And, and if I'm honest, if that is the model, I kind of wish it had been brought out. I kind of wish it had been there during Brexit, because I don't think we'd be where we are now. Because I think the reductive nature of identifying a change as a pro and con or a number, which is exactly what a referendum yeah. is, right? Yeah. Completely means that we we haven't analysed 
those different forces and the different magnitude of them because actually we you know and all the things he talks about the general sense of malaise yeah. or the external political factors or social more uh, social norms and stuff like that they absolutely are relevant to organizations and yeah. absolutely are uh, technological change would be the yeah, absolute obvious one for me so if i work i work with huge numbers of volunteers and they yeah. are deeply uncomfortable with some technology and deeply comfortable with others and a lot of that is down to their beliefs about what volunteering is and yep. so as they sense a change externally in the world, yep. they push against it because they believe volunteering is different. Yeah. Volunteering is humanist. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. Hu- volunteering is not about bots. Volunteering is about yeah. not process, it's about people. people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what's really interesting is the more you see that shift in the world, the more you see a group of people push against it. Yeah. And I get why. Yeah. But I also get that if you unpick all of that, you can get to the bottom of what the issue is and you can actually find different change. Yeah. And you find different solutions. Um, and so for me, at that point, it becomes incredibly powerful. So I would, I would absolutely use this yeah. if my organisation was facing a challenging period of change where we knew things couldn't stay as they are. So we do a, we're doing a project at the moment and we talk about, is doing nothing an option? Yes. Okay, that's And a it's great not, question. right? Yep. It's not. That is what's come out of it. Yeah. But we needed to get there. It's a really good question. And but... then we needed to unpick but why is there resistance? Yep. Because there is so, uh, we're doing this piece of consultancy and the phrase that's come out is yes, but. Yep. So everyone has said, no, 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 doing nothing's not an option. And then when we say, but can we do it? They go, yes, but. Yep. Yep. And the yep. buts yep. are yep. all different. Yep. And so one of the things that's made me literally in the last six minutes <laughs> is work out that I need to go and do this with my, with yep. my team that are doing because this. Because each one of those buts is... And we're not mapping it. What we've got phrase, is we've got right? huge lists yeah, yeah, yeah. and huge pros. What we're not trying to do is understand the magnitude of these different yeah. issues and how else we might address yeah, them. Yeah. So I love it if it's that. If there's a numer- numeracy system attached, I hate it. Fine. And, <laughs> and, and I think... I think or I hate a bit of it. <clears throat> pardon me. I think the, the fact that different forces have different strengths is important. Mm. Um, but I, I, I echo your point about reducing it to just a number being unhelpful. Um, so, so why don't we wrap up force field analysis yep. to say it feels like a useful tool. And I love Kurt Lewin. Can we do a whole episode? Yeah. Please. I don't, I, I don't think an episode's enough. I no, mean, but I, I want to get into his biog and find out who he is. Kurt Lewin series. <laughs> We're starting to sound like fangirls. <laughs> yeah. Right. Our, our next series, our next entire podcast is going to be um, Kurt Lewin. I'm really confident that'd be a bit of a turn off for people. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, let's the move Kurt on. Kurt Lewin podcast. So the next one, I'm excited about the next one. All right. Talk so, to me through it. So the next thing that, that I wanted to talk about was about the importance of united leadership, right? So, so this is really about how when change is delivered, it's, it, it succeeds most often when there is unity amongst leadership because the unity amongst leadership provides clear and consistent direction and messaging. And it, it's only through that unity that, that organizations or leadership teams tend to, to pull the, the mass of labor and effort and, and sort of uh, identity and, and drive and direction um, together behind them, right? So, so we just thought that oh, clearly that's an important thing within change. And we just wanted to touch on that very briefly from uh, a Brexit perspective and then, you know, take it back to organizations. So if we look at Brexit as a, a, a sort of unity versus disunity thing from a leadership perspective, several things pop up. I guess the first thing is that this is the political arena, which obviously isn't our domain, but um, but in itself, political environments are almost by definition in a multi-party system divided to some extent. Right? Well, that, and I think it's particularly pertinent to call out that in the British system and the American system, we have a two-party system. Yeah. So, and I, and what I mean by that is it is designed to find the two strongest parties because you have government and opposition. Yeah. And I think the really important thing is that it it is done under a political belief that if you put two opposing forces against each other, 
they will come up with better solutions and they keep each other in check. Yeah. And I think that's important. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And actually, just as a total side topic, I listened to a great podcast, another one, um, the other week, one of um, Adam Grant's podcast on the importance of rivalry and how rivalry helps both parties be better at certain points in time. So yeah. some interesting stuff. And then, you know, you can go to Margaret Heffernan who would tell you that competition is absolutely killing us. So there's a this in itself is a hugely divisive mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Right, so when we think about the divided political parties that we have, certainly in the, the UK in relation to Brexit, what we see, and I'm not going to go through all the parties, is we, we've got um, parties spread between their views on whether they want no Brexit or whether they want um, like a middle Brexit or whether they want a really hard Brexit. So, so the point is that the entire you know, political landscape at a party level is divided. So that, that means it's disunited from a leadership perspective. The next thing is that if we drill into it another stage, if we look, say, at the governing majority that we have in our government at the minute, what we find is actually we've got division in there as well. So here we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but we've got um, a conservative party that's divided internally. So it's got a wing of politicians who are pushing towards almost Brexit as a no Brexit, any cost piece. Then we've got um, politicians as well who actually want to remain. So within that party, there's a a division um, complicated to some extent by support from a a third, uh, sorry, another political party in there as well. So the governing majority is disunited, which again sends complex signals to the people um, that are being led in the change that the government's looking to put through. And then let's zoom in again. So we started with political parties overall. Um, then we've gone to the, the governing majority. And now we'll, we'll drill in a little bit towards political leadership, sort of reflecting on, I guess, the UK cabinet, um, which is, um, you know, all the, the sort of secretaries of government in the UK. Or as I heard this morning, leaking like a leaky thing. Leaking like a leaky thing. Okay. Yes, I think it probably is leaking like a leaky thing. Because because there's no there's no discipline within the group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and what's interesting, when we think about Brexit, it, it, a couple of things stand out, right? So when when we've got the, um, the actual cabinet, we've got a mixture of um, pro-Brexit and pro-Remain individuals on there, which is important for sort of representative um, inclusion within a leadership. But it means that the leadership's to some extent disunited and that complicates it. Um, you get loud and differing voices within the cabinet as well. So Theresa May's the Prime Minister, and has been throughout this process, who's had a clear set of uh, messages and, and directions. But around her, other strong political figures have been contradicting, proposing new directions, proposing alternatives. So we've had um, we've had a whole series of people. I won't, I won't do names because we don't. <laughs> let's not let's not do that role of honour. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to do that. Um, and then, then the last thing I was going to call out was that actually, you know, the, the, the Minister for Exiting Europe or something, I think is the official title, the, the Brexit Secretary. Um, is the Duxie. The Duxie. Well, it's the Department for Exiting the EU. Oh, yeah. The yeah, 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 okay. The Duxie. Whatever they yeah, pronounce yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Dreadful name. Um, Duxie. All right, Duck. Um, so the, the, um, the Brexit Secretary is an important role. And... And we've had multiple Brexit secretaries over the period of time that the government's been trying to do this. So what that means is that we've had an inconsistent set of leadership. And again, when you think about leading change within an organisation, if you have um, changing leaders within that role, if you have division of views, and if you have uh, variation in message with um, inconsistent and contradictory messages coming from leadership, it's going to be very hard to deliver your leadership, uh, deliver the change that your leadership wants to deliver. And just as... um, and I guess that's really all I want to talk about in terms of the, the unity of leadership. Okay. 
Okay. Uh, um, so I'm 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 literally about to explode. Okay. Uh, so let's move on quickly before. No, Jen- no, it's it's good explosion <laughs> because as it's always what happens, right? And I I'm actually referenced this on LinkedIn. Yeah. Those of you who picked up on it last week. Um, it's really frustrating when I come into an episode and I've got a really clear idea of what I think and then James explains it and I disagree with myself and I feel so stupid. I referred to it as uh, during... So we, we did an episode uh, we've recorded recently that's going to come out in series three and I basically changed my mind halfway through as I realised that I actually have even admitted I agree with him before. So I basically refer to myself as a plank because I feel like a total plank in the middle of it. Because I'm li- we, we're both learning, and even worse, right, right. I then have to go and promote an episode where I sound like a plank. Um, so that was the huddle episode that came yeah. out a couple oh, of weeks yeah, ago, yeah, remember, yeah. and I literally I changed my mind halfway through about what I think. So if nothing, I'm learning. But yeah, so for me, this is really important. This united leadership. There's three things I want to say about it. One is um, I I actually think the way you have to think about it is unity over process. Okay. Um, and I think that's the contrast with the EU is there is a clear process to disagree and agree and therefore you can engage in it versus what we have. And, and if you link back to the force field stuff you were talking about, yeah. one of the things that I think would have really helped is if they had actually bothered to do the analysis, they would have understood which issues need picking off and dealing with yeah. and therefore which ones to prioritize in the solution that they come up with. Yeah. They don't. So they're all arguing about it. Yeah. And there's division. And I think um, when you're talking about the dissenting voices and the leaky bucket and the leaking and the disagreement, if we go, and and I know we're going to talk about this in a different episode maybe about um, social change and stuff like that, but one of the things that's really interesting is you have to have the voices in the room, right? We all know that. Yeah, absolutely. But actually, two things. One, one in Brexit, they had the voices from within their own party in the room, which are already conflicted because they already have interest. They didn't have voices. So I think one of the biggest arguments was if you're going to do a major change like this, why don't you get across party pretty quickly, yeah, pretty quickly yeah, sorted. Yeah, yeah. The second thing is if you do not have a process that will guide you through it, that is agreed and shared yeah. of how you're going to make these decisions rather than you're just going to lock yourself in a room and or where did they go? They went to checkers yeah, ages ago, the, the checkers which is the, the, like the prime minister's country home. Yeah. You know, it's like Key Largo for Trump <laughs> yeah, or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. the Florida place. Camp David. Camp David, yeah. that's it. That's the official one. Yeah, yeah, so um, yeah, there's, there's a really important thing where if there is a process and you trust in the process, you trust that the views of yourself and others are being processed in it yes. and taken. And if they, you don't come out on top, that's okay. Yep, 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 yep. And so for me, there's a massive missing piece about this, um, or maybe a, a contempt, co- complementary piece yep. around the force field analysis. You do the force field analysis, it helps you understand the issues that are bigger than others. Yep. So it gives you confidence in the choices you're going to make. Yep. And then you define a really clear process that as a group you can communicate. Yep. And when you say, this is how we're going to allow dissent. This is allow, we're going to allow this group who have different opinions to forge a solution. And we are going to do this and then we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And each of those actions will create an output and those outputs will lead us to our decision. And what you do, and we do it in in sport all the time. So Uh when you have a dispute in sport and you have two teams who disagree... There is a process. So we have like uh, fourth official, yeah, we have yeah, yeah. Uh, playback, we have technology. Uh, I'm doing the match. The, I'm doing a TV yeah, yeah, drawing, yeah, 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 which yeah, is yeah. like in rugby when yeah. they send it to the fourth official. Is it fourth official? Yeah, fourth official. Um, and there's all these process. And part of that absolutely is about better information and data. Yeah. A lot of it 
is about managing a process such that you feel your problem has been managed appropriately by the right people. Yeah, and you can buy into the process. You buy into the process. So I, if I trust that my governing organisation in sport yeah. manages process effectively, there's confident, consistent noise that everyone else is happy with the way the process made, yeah. then when I get a decision that I'm unhappy with the outcome, I make my peace with it because there has been a credible yeah. process. Yeah, 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 yeah. And for me... A big part of what's happened um, over here in the UK, and I can't talk about America in this sense, yeah. but in the UK is that we are looking around as a, as a as a citizenship on both sides, on every side, and we're saying, where is the process? What yeah. what happens if this happens? Yeah. So one of the big concerns is, and I understand that people keep saying, well, it's negotiations, so you've got to play your cards and yeah. stuff, but the EU aren't doing it like that because they can't, because they have a process. Yeah. And so actually what happens if you don't have that process or you don't disclose it is you look chaotic. Yeah. And so when you think in organisational terms, the biggest sympathy, sympathy, the biggest... biggest uh, symptom? No, I can't think of the word. But basically the, exa- the situation that it would happen in yeah. is restructures. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, where yeah. I've been in a restructure and we have been absolutely clear and communicated the process yeah. and, and had transparency, even though the decisions were universally disliked by a large number of the, the, the organisation, yeah. they got it. They yeah. got what we we're going to do. They knew to expect what to happen. And you come back to Cotter's change process, which I know we're going to come yeah. on to. But that is really what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Have expectations of what's going to happen when. Yeah. And so one of the challenges, if you don't have that, yeah. is you get leaky leadership, yeah, leadership yeah, yeah. teams, and, right? And, and, and it's the cabinet. They're playing by different rules. They're marching yeah. on their own. And they're worrying about their team. Yeah. And they're going back to their, their team and going, this is what you're going to say. And this is how yeah. many places. I mean, I've had it. I've literally said, my team's going to be fine because I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to brief them. Yeah. No, that's just, that's, that's absolute. You think they're not going to tell someone? Yeah. You think the whole organisation isn't going to know yeah. when your entire team comes sailing through the assessment? Yeah, 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 yeah. So for me, that's where the, um, the synergy between organisations and this Brexit piece comes. It's about looking at how do you unite the leadership through a process? Yeah. And I think, I think that's absolutely, for me, critical. And I think that's where force field analysis really helps you. Great. Because you understand what the dissenting voices are and yeah. you can put weight to them. Yeah, yeah, you can yeah. say, this is really what's driving people. Yeah, here's an important factor that we need to address on one side And at the, the moment in Brexit and in organisations, you get three different people standing up going, no, what's really driving them is immigration yeah, this in is a Brexit. The most, the most or what's thing. really driving them is the fact that the organisation isn't profitable or that we're based in Milton Keynes or whatever yeah. it is, right? Yeah. So for me, that's that's a massive learning. Put a decent process in place yeah, and make yeah. it transparent and yeah stick to it yeah, and, and then you can dissent united about the process and then you can dissent in your yeah, opinion yeah. right because you can have you can come out and say we weren't agreed yeah but we decided to go with the majority but this is the process yeah, we took yeah and that helps with communication which is actually the next thing yeah right sorry i realized i've just like Ooh. totally ranted no, sorry, that was interesting. but I'm, I'm so it's been really interesting for me because i didn't think that was the bit that i thought i cared about and i really do you clearly do yes yeah, um, let's go and you led us on well to communication which is actually the next thing that i want to talk about yeah i did that do you like that that was very good it i'm was really proud of that intentional, yeah. i know it wasn't intentional so i completely <laughs> forgot what the next bit was um, so we've talked about the importance of unity and leadership and, and one of the things we said is that actually a process can help define how unity exists within leadership and certainly how unity is presented to um, the teams that are being and unity of message leadership. which is what unity we're going to come message, on to now yeah. okay so the next thing that I wanted to talk about is um, something that's in another episode uh, that, that will come out I believe after this one around communication briefly um, so we're not going to dwell on the topic but it's just something I want to reflect on um, this is uh, we're going to talk about a model called Monroe's Motivated Sequence 
which right. is, by the way, my favourite name of any model ever. It's good, isn't it? Um, if only it was done by Victor Vroom, who's maybe my favourite named person. Um, anyway, Monroe's motivated sequence is all about influential communications. And we know that when uh, change is being led, that um, having influential communications with people is really an important thing to do. You need to get your message across. You need to take people with you. Uh, you create followership, you create a sense of urgency, you create a vision, you do all these types of things that, um, that help you lead the change that you want to lead. Um, now, what Monroe's Motivated Sequence does is it, it sets out five stages that can be used, a five-stage approach to help create influential communication. And what, um, what I want to do and just reflect on here is that actually within, uh, within at least Brexit in the UK, um, both sides of um, both sides of the opinion, if you will, are broadly using Monroe's motivated sequence as a way to uh, to promote their arguments and promote their causes. So, in some ways, this is an example of something that's being done well. The reason it gets us into a bit of trouble in the minute of the UK is that um, it, it because it is polarized. So, so we're we're pulling in two different directions. And, and when we say done well. I want to just clarify. We're talking about done effectively for their cause, right? Absolutely. So yeah, we're yeah. not passing any judgment on either oh, side. Oh, no, 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 no. Because oh, that would be crazy. Yeah, we wouldn't uh, do that. But, but genuinely, it's about where we are seeing something being effective in what it's trying to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah, no, saying. totally, totally good point. Um, we, we see the model being used. Yeah, let's um, go with that. And, and, and adhered to. So the model really quickly is is saying that there are five stages you need to go through to create an influential communication. And I'll run through those quickly. Then I'll do like a little mini snapshot from both sides of a UK campaign so you can see the type of thing that's happening. So step one of Monroe's motivated sequence is capture the attention of your audience. So do something attention grabbing. Step two then is to create a burning platform by showing that the current state is unsatisfactory. Um, stage three is to do uh, to to satisfy the need that you've created in your burning platform, right? So you need to overcome um, the, the challenges that you've created and satisfy the audience and make them feel that you've got a solution that will fix the problem that you've created. Then once you've done that, you need to help your audience visualize the future that you've proposed so they feel all you know wrapped up in the cotton wool of your your solving of their um, problems that you've created after you've grabbed their attention. And then the last thing you need to do is you need to issue a call to action. So I'll run through those really quickly again. Capture your audience's attention. Tell them that there's something that, that's a need. Explain how you can fix that need and solve their problems. Help them visualize that future, then issue a call to action. Right? So, so that's the sequence. Now, really quickly, let's look at how the different campaigns are doing that. Right. Do you want to do one campaign and I'll do the others, just so we make sure we treat them equally and fairly? Okay. Um, Which ooh, one would gosh. you like to do? <laughs> well, I'll do Lee. I don't mind doing Lee. Oh, I don't mind doing Lee either. Go for your life. Okay. Um, I'll run through leave because it's on the left, which is where I'm sitting. So um, the, the attention grabbing piece. So leave campaign, if people remember, had for a while a big red bus that drove around with a sign on the side of it said, that said 350 million GBP savings, something like that. So that's a really attention grabbing piece. So, so that's, a, that's grabbing attention per Monroe's motivated sequence. The next thing then was to create a need, right? So, so what's the need that's being created in the messages that follows that attention grabbing? Well, this is a statement that says, effectively, we currently waste £350 million a week that we could be using to fund the NHS and save lives in the UK. So that's a soundbite message that creates a burning platform, shows that the current state is unsatisfactory. So having done that, the next stage of the process says that we need to satisfy that need. 
So how can we do that? Well, here's the message. We can stop this. We can gain our freedom and be rich and healthy if we stop spending that 350 million on the EU and instead spend it on our NHS and fund and invest in our own lives. So that is a satisfaction of the need that's been discussed. The next stage is to help you visualize that future. Okay, so once we've done that, we will have a well-funded healthcare system that's uh, independent, that's wealthy, and can make sure that we have best-in-service healthcare. So that's visualizing the future. When you're there, you'll be able to walk straight into your uh, local hospital or GP. Service will remain free at the point of offering. It will remain high quality. It will get better. The queues will be smaller. There'll be more beds. Whatever, that's visualizing the future. And then the next thing that you need to do is you need to issue a call to action. So we've talked about this. All right, so that's the future. Isn't it warm and cuddly? You're all wrapped up there. Now, how are we going to make that happen? Well, I need your help. You need to go out and vote. We need to make sure that we have a high turnout on this election. You need to be there and stamp your box in the right place. Right? So, so that is an example of Monroe's motivated sequence being used in a political framework, capturing attention, creating a need, satisfying the need, helping the audience to visualize the proposed future, and then issuing a call to action. So that's leave. And, I, and we just absolutely, that's leave. Remain have used it as well, particularly, yeah. I think, around the people's vote. Sure. Um, so we're going to look at an example about that's happened post-referendum um, because it's exactly the same thing. So the attention grabbing, which I've heard to is throwing a dead cat on the table before. Oh, uh, yeah, that'll work. Yeah, that's charming, isn't it? <laughs> uh, what's your dead cat fact? That's what they used to say. <laughs> so uh, the attention grabbing piece is all the car companies are leaving the UK. <laughs> and then the need creating a burning platform is Brexit is going ahead and will be economically ruined forever. No, no, you'll notice there's no drama in any of the yeah, language yeah, that yeah. either side use. Um, then you move on to this, how can we create a, a way to satisfy your, your, your need? We can stop this. We just need to cancel Brexit, cancel Article 50, whatever the phrase is. And then exactly like uh, James described with Leave, they create a visual in your mind. So they create visualisation and they have your audience, their audience think about what it might look like. So when we cancel Brexit, we'll be rich, we'll be peaceful, we'll still be connected to Europe and part of the biggest trading bloc in the world or whatever they say. And then finally, they come on to action, which is a very clear and articulate call to action. Email your MP today about a secular referendum. Make sure you tell them that you want it and they can make it a reality. And I think... Um, uh, again, I'm going to say we are not passing judgment on any of these statements. No. Um, but I do. It was kind of theatrical, though. Wasn't I, I know. I well, like, well, because but this is the thing. It feels it like it's been made theatrical. Yeah, yeah. It's and, rhetorical. And I am going to get myself in a huge amount of trouble now by saying this all, all comes down to the role of communications in organisations. It's a huge problem. Right? So, so in terms of lessons for organisations. Oh man! And this is my this is my bugbear. When communications is in the room, when you make major decisions. You should not be led by what they think is going to play out. So what's going to play well today, Jane? I mean, it's just astonishing. They shouldn't even be in the stuffing room. And, you know, ironically, I suspect I could trace this back to one particular political leader in the UK that has made this trend of communications being in charge of everything, whose name will remain nameless. But he was possibly, you know, in my heyday and use. Anyway, um, it's, it's a genuine plea to leaders a number of leaders that I work with and have worked with over many years and I see see their head of communication or their communication department as their absolute lifeline for protecting them. 
and I understand that. But bad decisions are being made every day by choosing to use the tools that communications people know are effective. And, and to choose to use these tools like this kind of motivated sequence without understanding the polarizing nature of them for every side, without understanding that you are having an uninformed debate to get change on both sides is unhealthy. Half of the reason the country is still divided is because they feel like those that wanted campaign for remain were telling them that the world was going to fall apart and clearly it hasn't so they were lying and the, i mean you, you mentioned the red bus i can't even believe you dared mention the red bus because clearly everyone's furious about that leave remain everyone everyone's like either furious or happy i don't know but it's it's very divisive it's very attention grabbing it is it was very attention grabbing and and I, i'm really worried that leaders don't understand the difference between communications tools that are effective in delivering a message and communication tools that are appropriate and proportional to what they are trying to achieve. And ultimately, if you are trying to achieve change in an organizational country, getting people to say yes or no to it is not your battle. Your battle is bringing them on your journey. So taking a snapshot in time, whether it's a referendum or whether it's a staff vote or whether it's a team agreeing to something is not the battle. The battle is do they genuinely believe it such that they will put their weight behind it so that it works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, but this is abs- uh, this is a plea from me. Just be real. And I'm sorry, heads of comms. I know there's loads of brilliant, brilliant heads of communications that I work with, and I love you, and I think you're great. But it is a wider issue with society and the way that we manipulate marketing and communications at the moment to get people to do what we want. Yeah. And it's deeply unhealthy. And it's it's it's. Uh, I can't even. I'm so mad. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So next week on Jane's Soapbox, we're going to be talking. Sorry. <laughs> She's just put her head inside her um, her scarf to hide her face. Um, I promised I, I was enjoyed that. Ra- I on the plus that. side, it wasn't a rant about Brexit. No, it wasn't. We we. You pro- I promised yeah, you not to yeah, do that. Exactly. Um, okay. So so I guess for me, um, I think some of the messages here are that things like Monroe's motivated sequence are powerful communication tools amazing like and, in, in the sense they're effective amazing yeah, yeah, yeah. and and i'd say that you know we, we will do stuff on storytelling we've we've got stuff on communications coming out we'll do stuff on well and we've done yeah we've done we've done something coming out from yeah. about landing a message yeah, did we yeah. already go out yeah, uh, it's up. in it's a few weeks after this yeah um now those are influencing tools that help you tell stories and, and i genuinely believe that this stuff is emotional and almost neurological and hormonal in terms of the effects that it has but that doesn't mean that the, the thing that's being proposed or delivered through that means of communication is necessarily a good thing. So it's all about influencing. And yeah, and I think, do you know what? It comes back, we've, we've, we're about to record an episode around goal setting. Yeah. And for me, it's the same thing. Just because you know a psychological construct works yeah. doesn't give you free reign to use it without at least thinking about the unin- unintended consequences. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe from an organisational perspective, what I'd say is tools like this will help you sell a shoddy outcome. They'll help you yeah. sell a suboptimal um, yeah. solution you want everyone to agree to something this is the way yeah. to do it but but no if you do it you are wholly responsible for making yeah. an informed decision versus using the previous model that we talked about yeah. and thinking about okay how is it that we build a leadership that actually agree on what we're doing yeah. such that yeah. it's a it's an in, informed conversation yeah um, and for me what i'd say is do the hard yards create a good solution invest in that and then worry less about selling it, right? So for me, it's about quality of product as opposed to sales of product, and that goes with ideas as well as solutions and strategies. 
Um, so there you go. There's a far more restrained and far more sensible approach. Yeah, but we agree. Yeah, we, we're totally on the same page. Anyway, that was that was fun. I hope you guys um, enjoy learning about Monroe's motivated <laughs> sequence. Yay. Um, yay! All right, so so that's the communication yep. piece, and again, we had some sort of Brexit references in there. Um, the last thing that we're going to do to to close this off is to touch back to Cotter's eight step change process. Now. In our episode on organizational change at the beginning of series two, we did this in detail. So we're going to assume that people know roughly what, what's going on. It's not going to be a deep dive, um, but we're just going to reflect on, on the, the model um, through, to some extent, the lens of Brexit. So I'll run through the model really quickly, a brief introduction, a, a detail of the eight steps very quickly, then a little reflection of how we're doing um, from a Brexit perspective. So Cotter's model has eight steps. It's, it's a methodology that can be used to deliver change from an organizational perspective predominantly. So the first thing you need to do to follow this model is to create a sense of urgency. The second is to build a guiding coalition. The third is to create an inspiring vision for the future. The fourth is to build an army of volunteers to help start the change. The fifth is to remove barriers that exist to your change. The sixth is to start to create short-term wins in your march towards your destination. The seventh is to accelerate that change, taking on more ambitious goals and delivering more quickly towards your objective. And then the eighth and last thing to do is phrased as embed a new culture, which really means to make sure that that you uh, adopt and sustain the new ways of working that you've used to help you get to where you're headed towards. So that's Carter's eight steps in, um, in a uh, reduced bite-sized version. So let's look at that um, in relation to what we're seeing from a Brexit perspective. So step one, create a sense of urgency. Now, this one I think is really interesting. So if we think about it from a Brexit perspective, our, our, my view is that we've, we have created a great sense of urgency, right? There is urgency out there within the UK as a result of the, the efforts to lead this change. Unfortunately, well, triggering Article 50 was the ultimate creation of urgency, right? It, it does, yeah. Because well, it was like, we're on a clock. Yeah, it's, it's totally triggered the, the countdown. And that's a really important thing. But I'd say also rhetorically, a sense of urgency has been created, but it's been a conflicting set of urgencies. So, so there's a, a sense of importance and urgency from both sides of a campaign um, now, that, now that we're up and marching. But I, I agree that the, the setting the timeline was a real urgency piece yeah. in there. We did well at step one. Yeah. Step two, build a guiding coalition. So this is about creating a, a, a stable, guiding leadership group that's representative um, and that will help um, yeah. create followership. Did you deliberately choose the word stable? Uh, maybe. Okay. Maybe I did. Interesting. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Okay, that's the only political <laughs> reference I'm making. Uh, okay. So, 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 in terms of where we are at the minute, um, from a Brexit perspective, it doesn't really feel like the the leadership's all that stable in relation. To this. No, if this was Donkey Kong or some other computer game, mm-hmm. um, our government would have would still be on on stage one, screen yeah. one, right? Um, I don't. I don't feel like any of the remaining steps are relevant currently because I don't get a sense that this is what they're trying to achieve. And yeah. I don't I think they probably are, but yeah. the point is they haven't communicated yeah. that. Yeah. They haven't communicated this is where we need to get to yeah. and this is what we need to do to get there. Yeah. And I, I don't and contra- controversially actually I think that is about leadership. I don't think that's about who it doesn't matter what side you're on. Yeah. I think again if you set out a process and you show and you and so there's a you you just ran through them and number six is short-term wins yeah and i actually think this is huge i I say to anyone going into a new job do one thing do it really well 
yeah. and build a little bit of trust and, and a lot of um, room for manoeuvre. So if you do one thing really well, people will yeah. give you space. Yeah. They will give you space to get it right. You're right, yeah. Um, and I, I, for me, I, it's interesting because I've never thought of Cotter's model in this way. Mm-hmm. I would move short-term wins right up that list. So he's got build an army of volunteers. Yeah, great. I would have short-term win above that. Yeah, and it could be that it goes between... Yeah, yeah, and, I, and I know I'm not picking yeah. fights about yeah. it, but I guess my point is that if you feel like you are edging forward, mm-hmm. then you will give people more space and time to get things right. And I think as a leadership, um, if you can build a guiding coalition and have some short-term wins, then 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 almost the, the building an army of volunteers comes from that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the challenges is that I think... I, I think no one's and it, you know you rewind back to the beginning of this episode and we talk about force field analysis yeah. and if we had had clarity from the beginning about what the detail was rather than a single reductive question in mm-hmm. the same way we talked about force field analysis and the single reductive score um, I think um, it would be much easier for the leadership to do that because they could build they can build a vision around something yeah, they've yeah, got yeah. nothing to build around and I think um, I think for me, it, it kind of emphasizes why Cotter's eight-step change process is so good. Yeah, it's very. I'm important. not saying it's the only answer, no, no, but, but what I am saying is that I can look at a number of other social change and political change models around the world. I can look at the Irish referendums that have happened. Yeah. I can look at the EU and it's 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 uh, the way it's come together. I can even look at you know the way Putin does things in Russia, and I can see, I can see some of these steps. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the lesson is that, that this is an effective way to deliver a change program and that, you know, from a Brexit perspective, it doesn't feel like we've done it. No. You know, there are conflicting visions that have been created. There have been conflicting armies of volunteers. We've not, as a, a unified leadership, been good at removing barriers to this obstacle in terms of creating short-term wins. That's been very limited as well, yep. later down. So there's a lot of stuff that's, that's really... Um, not really progressed. And I would argue that every time I've seen an organisation fail at implementing change, and I think, you know, one of the classic examples I would say is um, the NHS tried to implement an IT solution. I yeah. know there was huge issues, and I know it was the wrong time to do IT, but I would say they got as far as creating an inspiring vision, and they never really made their GP surgeries, the people that were going to have to champion it, believe. So they never sure, built an army of volunteers. Got volunteers yeah, um, yeah. And they never removed the technical barriers. And yeah. for me, you know, it's a very good. I would actually argue it's a really good diagnostic tool when you're looking back. Almost Why hasn't it learned. worked last yeah, time? Yeah. Let's have a look. Let's try and avoid that next time. Yeah, yeah. So I like that. Cool. But I like Cotter. Yeah, we like we like that. We that's like Cotter and Lewin. Yeah. yeah. This was just an excuse to talk about. Yeah, Cotter we just and wanted Lewin, to do that as well. And if that's two Ks, Kurt and Cotter. Maybe we could have um, brought them together. Kurt Cotter. We can come up with Kurt Cotter's new model. Yeah, but that's his first name. Oh, yeah. you're saying like a smoosh name? Like, yeah, a smoosh. I didn't know like, that was the phrase. Is that the I official think, phrase? I think so. Is that a smoosh name? Well, well Kimye, like Kim Kardashian Kimye. and Kanye, is that, yeah. is that right? Swoosh? 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 No, it's not swoosh. That's, that's, that's a reputable change. I go with Portman too. Yes, that's the correct. <laughs> this is always what happens. I go low. <laughs> I go lowbrow, and then James corrects me with the actual dictionary definition. That's that is fun. correct. That Portman too is just a funny name anyway, because it's three yeah. words that combine to one word. I guess that doesn't happen too much. Anyway. It's French, right? Yeah. Anyway. The next conversation that we'll be having is about combining words to make new words. No, it won't be. No, we won't be. We're never talking about political stuff again. That's what I've decided. Oof, that was a roller coaster, wasn't it? Sorry. I thought it was enjoyable, but it was definitely a bit of a roller coaster. Um, that brings us to the end of, end of the episode, though. So, in terms of recap on what we've done, again, we were trying to, to use Brexit as a way to think about change and think about delivering change and about 
how organizations can learn some lessons from some of the things that uh, they can observe in the wider world and take some of those lessons back into their worlds of work to help frame and deliver change in new ways. And we, we started by talking about understanding change at an early stage through using the force field analysis tool, which is one of Kurt Lewin's uh, legacy uh, tools that he's left us, which again is a powerful way to assess um, the forces that support and the forces that restrain potential changes. So, so that feels pretty good. We then talked about the importance of unity and leadership for consistent messaging and for helping to, to um, you know, create followership towards a direction. And in that, we talked about the importance of having process within leadership that creates a sense of transparency and trust within a population and also on which can hang anchors of unity that bring leadership together into a united front and a consistent set of message delivery. Um, having talked about that, we then went on and touched on Monroe's motivated sequence talking about how to create influential communications and to reflect on the fact that both sides of the Brexit ar argument are um, creating motivated sequences of conversation to influence the population and, and noting that this tool is powerful in organizations but at the same time you know it's easy to polish something and sell it but that doesn't mean that you've got a good thing that you want to sell so just a, a word of caution there that sometimes it's worth investing in the underlying product as opposed to just selling it um, and I guess a call out to, to be aware as listeners in organizations that people may be doing this for you um, and, and trying to influence you. Oh my God, you we didn't even way. cover that. Bit. No, we've got, a whole, okay. we've got a whole episode around uh, being influenced, which is something we'll touch on. And then to kind of wrap up the episode, we, we looked at Carter's eight-step change process and tried to reflect on how successful those different stages have been or how successfully those different stages have been implemented in relation to Brexit. And we noted that some of the things at the beginning were done well, like creating urgency, um, but from that stage onward, um, it's not felt like that process has been particularly well delivered in relation to Brexit. So, so that's us. That's my sum up of the episode. Yeah, I'm um, exhausted. Whew. It's a Friday, guys. It's a Friday. But I think these are conversations that are happening, right? People are watching, looking are. around their world, and quite often they talk about how does this relate to me? Yeah. How does how could I use what I'm learning? So, yeah. Don't forget, cool. you can let us know what you think. Yeah, tweet us or, or, or not. <laughs> yeah, don't, no, please don't tweet us about what you think about our Brexit views because we haven't shared any. No, don't we tweet have us shared. about Brexit at all. No. But, but absolutely tweet us about um, some of the models and whether you think they're relevant to your workplace and if you've, yeah. learned, anyth if you've learned anything from the process yeah. of Brexit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we are at The World Podcast. We are on Insta, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook. Twitter. Yeah, yeah, on Twitter. I did uh, Twitter. LinkedIn, yeah. Facebook. Come say hello. I'll just say all the stuff you and if you want to, yeah, too. Insta, and then LinkedIn. if you want to uh, sign up for our Wow Mail, you can do that on our website. Yeah, Wow well. Mail, do that. That's a good one. All right, guys. Well, that has been a roller coaster and a whirlwind. Oh, hasn't it? And a whirling dervish. I don't think I ever want to have that conversation again. No, it was fun. It was, but it was fun, and it's interesting, and it makes me realise what actually what I've learned because yeah. I've learned a lot. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? There's some good stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. great stuff. To okay. Bye, right, James. Bye, James. Bye, guys. Take care. Hi. Thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you.